At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is progressive talk show host Tom Hartman, who reaches 7 million people a week. Tom, so great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here with you, Bob. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. You talk to people all over the country every day, and you even reach some foreign countries with your program. What's the temperature of the country? Wow, that's a tough one. I, I think that there's a uh, – it's, it's kind of a confluence or, or a mixture of uh, great dread and great hope. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm seeing um, – and, and, you know, given this is uh, my biased perspective on things, but uh, it certainly seems to me that the, the, the GOP and the conservatives in the country are doubling down on basically fear and, and you know, fear of other – Fear of immigrants, fear of black people, fear of gay people, etc., um, and and hate that, that is so often associated with fear. At the same time, and, and trying to block Democrats from having any successes legislatively. At the same time, I, I, we have for the first time in my lifetime, or at least not not in my lifetime, but at least in the last forty years, we have a president who is openly rejecting neoliberalism, and I think that's a huge and important thing. Um, that uh, President Biden is is you know calling out trickle down economics, Reaganomics, whatever you want to call it, and, and the damage that it's done—the fifty dollar, fifty trillion dollar transfer of wealth from uh, the middle class to the top one percent over the last forty years, the the loss of sixty thousand factories overseas. I mean, you know, so there, I think there's a lot of hope that things can be done to uh, put this country back together. Um, it's it's a it's an extraordinary time. I, I you know. A time of great conflict and great potential. Okay. What we learned in 2016 is, I hate to use the word elite because it's now become a pejorative, but the elite news media, the New York Times, the pollsters were completely out of touch with the sentiment of the country. 
And in addition, people tend to live in their own bubbles. Someone like you talks to people from both sides. So the question becomes, are the Republicans, those on the right, just more vocal? Or how strong are their numbers? I think that the the uh, the hardcore uh, conservatives within the Republican Party are, are probably a, a relatively small percentage of our population. What they have going for them that the, the, the Democrats don't have is that over the last 40, 50 years, they have built out a massive media infrastructure. Um, you know, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News, of course, uh, you've got a billionaire with a, with a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company uh, that reaches millions and millions of people every day. Um, you've got 1,500 right-wing radio stations in the country. There are now some 300 Spanish language right-wing radio stations in the country doing, you know, Spanish language versions of Rush Limbaugh, as it were. Um, there are literally thousands of conservative publications on the internet, uh, in, in many cases, hundreds of them, each coming from, you know, single, uh, companies and individuals. Um, uh, a, uh, you know, the simple fact is if, if you're a billionaire and you're interested in not paying taxes and you want to, you know, hang on to your wealth and all that sort of thing, and you, and you, and you don't want your company to be facing consumer regulations or environmental regulations, um, you know, going to the right or supporting the Republican Party or supporting this kind of stuff makes sense. It's an investment. Um, and so there's, uh, you know, and, and going back to the early days of Charles and David Koch, there has, you know, become this really large network of, of right-wing funders for things that, that amplify these voices. So I think that the, the appearance of uh, right-wingism, as it were, in the United States is probably larger than the actual existence of it among average people. Um, but that's not to diminish its impact on our politics or on our nation. Um, the, uh, on the left wing, you know, it's a, it's a whole kind of different thing. It's, you know, there's not a whole lot of billionaires out there who are saying, yeah, tax me more. Um, and uh, although there are a few, and God bless them. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, that's my sense of it. Okay. So, and I hear from these people all the time and say, we have the guns, just wait. Yeah. So the question becomes, and really it's centered around Trump, although we can say that he tapped into something in America. Is this something we must fear, not only a vocal right, but an active right? Trump said last week that uh, if he is penalized legally, you better watch out. Is people going to be angry? Is that a paper tiger or is that real? I think it's both. Um, there's, a, you know, a small number of people who have a large number of guns. Um, when you start looking at people who own two or three more, more than two or three guns, it, it the, the number becomes very small, but the number of guns some of them own is, you know, like 50 or 100. Uh, I, I get it that there has been a stirring of the militia movement over the last a few decades. Uh, when Tim McVeigh blew up Oklahoma City, it was supposed to be a call to arms to these folks. Uh, he was running off the Turner Diary, which continues to inspire that movement. Uh, the Turner Diaries is a book uh, in which uh, a, a, a patriot uh, blows up the uh, a federal building. Uh, in this case, I believe it was the FBI building in the book, as I recall. It's been a couple of decades since I read it. 
And uh, in response to that, the government clamps down on gun ownership and, and uh, on the right-wing movement. And in response to that, the, the good white patriots rise up and, and, and uh, there's a civil war and they kill all the black people and all the Jews and, you know, everybody that the right likes to hate on. And in the end, you know, the, it's now a white Christian country and uh, they're standing there in the, you know, in the, in the, in the blood and the mud, um, but they've rescued their nation. And uh, that and Campus Saints, this French book, uh, you know, have become like the Bibles of this movement. Um, like I said, Tim McVeigh thought everybody was going to jump in behind him. Uh, he badly miscalculated the time. And in fact, for the next decade, the militia movement really took a hit because it was associated with Tim McVeigh. So um, then, you know, after 9-11, it, it started, they started getting their mojo back. There was a common enemy, uh, you know, Muslims and brown people and foreigners. And uh, that was a huge opportunity for the white racists, the white supremacists to, to jump in and say, no, we're the ones who will save America. We're the patriots. We'll take care of this. We're going to arm ourselves. And uh, the Bush administration kind of looked the other way, even though their FBI came up with this extraordinary report in 2008 on uh, the right-wing hate movement in the United States and how dangerous it was becoming. When that report was issued in the first months of the Obama administration, you'll recall, uh, by the FBI, after they had issued, a, during the last year of the Bush administration, a similar report on left-wing, the dangers of left-wing extremism. Uh, but when the one on the right-wing extremism came out, it so inflamed the, the right and the Republican Party that Obama pulled the report. Um, so we've been kind of flying in the dark. And I think it's just in, you know, basically since January 6th that, that the government, you know, certainly during the, during the Trump years, uh, there was no support for anybody in the government who would be seriously looking into this. The FBI had backed off. And uh, so I think it's just really been the last year and a half that uh, our federal government is starting to take seriously this, this threat to America, whether it's the kind of threat that we should all be worried about or whether it's just the kind of threat that people like you and I in the media, um, politicians, uh, people, the high profile people need to worry about. I don't honestly know. I mean, the last the last killing in the media was the yeah, America's number one progressive talk show host back in the 80s, I believe it was, uh, Alan Berg you know, who was gunned down by a couple of skinheads in the parking lot of his radio station in Denver, as I recall. Uh, they made a movie about it called Talk Radio. Um, whether, you know, that kind of st stochastic terrorism is going to happen again, I think that that's what Trump is trying to encourage, his calls to arms. I'm, I'm certainly hearing a lot of rhetoric that sounds uh, not just from Trump, but uh, particularly from Trump. That sounds like an open encouragement of stochastic terrorism, of lone wolf terrorism. Um, but whether it's going to materialize, and, and I mean, it, obviously it already is in, in many areas and in many places, but whether it's going to materialize in a way that you might call a civil war, that you might call a, you know, a, a civil disturbance, I, I still think is a very open question, Bob. Okay. So since 2016, there's been an ongoing analysis of who really is making up the Republican Party. Let me go a little bit further. Yes, rich people who don't want to pay taxes have historically been Republicans. Not all of them, but a great number of them. But at first, when Trump won, there was the belief 
that it was the dispossessed and the disadvantaged who'd moved to Republican Party from Democratic Party. Then the word came out, no, really, it was people with money. And the analysis of January 6th was, no, these were middle and upper middle class people. They had means. Then we have St. Louis, the people with the guns on their uh, on their porch during the march. Needless to say, they were notorious litigants, but they were also upper middle class. Who is really in control? Is this a lower class movement or a middle upper class movement? By movement, you're talking about the GOP or you're talking about yeah, the GOP, or, the GOP. Yeah. Well, it, you know, there's the, the, like you said, the natural constituents of the very, the, the, the morbidly rich, as I refer to them, um, you know, who, who want to just stuff their money bins, um, and, and who I think, you know, some of whom are probably suffering from uh, the mental illness, uh, OCD, uh, a variety of OCD that's called hoarding syndrome, you know, had, had they not been born um, generally white and, and upper middle class or even wealthy. Uh, they might, you know, be living in an apartment that's floor to ceiling newspapers and tin cans. Um, so you've got that constituency. Um, the 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 Republican Party has done a good job over the last forty years since Reagan um, of branding itself. Reagan, you know, on his horse and and all that sort of thing. Really, um, the you know, bringing in NASCAR and 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 these kinds of of totems uh, almost for the Republican Party. Um, you know, that was that was the Democratic Party's brand in the 50s, 60s and, and 70s, I would argue. Um, so uh, you've got a lot of kind of Joe Sixpack types across the country. Part of that, I think, is also the fact that in most states in the United States, there literally is not a single radio station carrying progressive talk radio. You have to get it off Sirius XM. And uh, and yet there is not a single part of the United States where there's not at least one and typically two or more uh, radio stations carrying right wing talk radio. So there's uh, this is some been a hobby horse of mine for years and it sounds self-interested, but um, it's really not this. I think the Democratic Party has ignored this media disparity for years to their disadvantage. And, uh, you know, when we were on Air America, Air America was carried on on uh, 54 clear channel stations. And then Mitt Romney's company took over Clear Channel, and suddenly Clear Channel stations are dropping Air America left and right until to the point where Air America couldn't sustain itself any longer. Um, I, you know, the, the, so there's that. Um, I mentioned earlier. Now there's these uh, Spanish language right wing stations. There, there, there's an aggressive outreach. Uh, Ralph Reed's group. Americans for Faith and Freedom, I think it's called, um, uh, just today announced that they're spending uh, over $50 million reaching out to, to Hispanics specifically um, on the issues of hating on gay people and uh, on abortion because uh, so many Hispanics are Catholic, that that's a natural topic for them to flip them Republican. So uh, on the other hand, I think on the on the Democratic side, you're seeing you know the, the growth of the union movement. You know, among young people, people under thirty, there's a, a huge uh, uh, take up of the Democrats. But but they, it seems to me like the Republican movement um, does not largely include the people we were talking about a moment ago. You know, the 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 militia movement types. Um, although, you know, Trump is embracing them. I, I'm not sure that most other Republicans are. I'm not sure if that's if that was what you were asking, Bob. Did well, I, I think that 
I think that ultimately covered it enough. Let me go to the next topic. You happen to mention Reagan. You and me lived through that era, and there was a conscious effort by the Republicans to lionize him, canonize him, rename everything. He is God. Now, recently, we've seen something, you know, it's nowhere near the size of the effort to do the same thing with Obama. And there's certainly nothing inherently wrong with Obama, and he got the ACA passed. But this was a guy who was trying to compromise with a party that did not want to compromise. And I think that some Democrats are lost in the past. What is your view about the Obama administration in those years? Well, first of all, with regard to the Legacy Project, the Reagan Legacy Project was well-funded. I mean, you know, a number of uh, very, very wealthy people stepped up. Uh, Their goal was to have a building named after uh, Reagan or a statue made to him in every uh, county in the United States uh, and in every country in the world. And they've met that goal. Um, from re- you know, renaming Washington's National Airport to uh, you know, putting statues up and all over the place, renaming buildings. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there's not something comparable around Obama. There, there may be an effort to, to promote him as a, as a great uh, president or something like that, but uh, I'm sorry, we've got uh, F-15s or F-35s or whatever. The, the no, they don't bomb you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But there's been a lot of that going on. The, the, uh, these military jets have really picked up in the last few months. I have a feeling it has something to do with what's going on overseas. In any case, um, uh, my sense of the Obama presidency was that he was um, so sensitive to being called the angry black man that uh, he was very averse to any kind of conflict. And uh, as a consequence of that, you know, a lot of things that should have been called out never did get called out. And like you said, you know, he was constantly trying to compromise with Republicans. Um, he also was unwilling to to reverse or call out neoliberalism, and uh, you know, which I think was a great tragedy because I think certainly by the time that he was reelected in 2012, America was getting very close to this tipping point where uh, we were ready as a society after after almost 40 years of the Reagan experiment of the neoliberal experiment to reject it. And, and frankly, I think that's what put one of the things, uh, along with a little help from Russia, that put Trump at the White House in 2016 was that he explicitly campaigned against neoliberalism. Trump's, Trump was lying through his teeth on most of these things, you know, saying he was going to raise taxes so much that he'd get a nosebleed and his friends would refuse to talk to him, that he was going to bring back union labor, that he was going to have a health care program that gave everybody in the country better health care than they've got right now for free uh, or for very little cost, that he was going to make college affordable again, that he was going to help support union activity, that he was going to bring back our jobs from overseas. Every single one of those things were, were absolute lies. But people bought them in 2016. And, you know, because Trump basically appropriated much of Bernie Sanders' message. Um, had Obama done that uh, four or eight years earlier, I don't know if he would have had success or if the country wasn't quite cooked enough, you know, uh, hadn't seen the results of neoliberalism enough to, to go along with the repudiation of it. And, uh, and the issue of race, you know, complicated it tremendously for President Obama. I think he's a good person, a, a good and decent man, and I have a tremendous respect for him. Um, you know, I was there at his inauguration, in fact, just about 50 feet away from him when he was sworn in. It was a great honor. And, uh, uh, you know, visited the White House afterwards. But I, I really think that Joe Biden is going to be the guy who goes down in history as the, as the person who finally turned us 
away from the direction we've been going in the last 40 years. Okay, for the uninformed, can you give us a brief definition of neoliberalism? Yeah, neoliberalism, uh, first of all, the word liberal is uh, means a different thing in Europe than it does in the United States. Here in the United States, it means what we might call progressive. In Europe, uh, liberal means what you might call conservative here, or even libertarian. Uh, neo- or liberal economics in Europe is laissez-faire. It's, you know, hands-off, government hands-off. Uh, low taxes, no regulation, no labor unions, no, no, basically no government support of anything other than, you know, the courts, the army, and the police. And uh, so in the, in the 40s, a group of economists, um, including one American, Milton Friedman, uh, led by uh, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, uh, got together in uh, Switzerland and uh, thought, you know, they were trying to figure out how to, how to harden the democracies of Europe and, and the United States all around the world, but particularly the democracies of Europe, so that they would never again either flip communists like Russia had done with the Soviet Union or f- flip uh, fascists like Germany, Italy, and, Fr- and Spain had done. And uh, being economists, they kind of fulfilled the old Abe Maslow quote. You know, he said the famously said that when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem in the world looks like a nail. Um, they figured that economics would solve all things. And so they came up with this idea of the new li- liberalism, the neo liberalism. And basically, it, 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 here are the major bullet points for it. Um, number one, that the market should be the ultimate decider of basically everything, that there's a billion decisions being made in the marketplace every moment of every day. As we're speaking right now, Bob, there's probably a thousand people um, who are trying to decide which brand of orange juice to buy. All those, all that data, all that activity um, is something that is so far beyond the ability of any politician or bureaucrat to understand or have or know that they could, you could never, you could never uh, replicate it. So therefore, the market has the wisdom, and the market should be making the decisions. Number one, uh, number two, because of that, a government regulation, which is an interference in the marketplace, should be absolutely minimized to the point of virtual irrelevance. Um, uh, deregulation is a massive part of, of neoliberalism. One of the reasons that Reagan tried to gut the Environmental Protection Agency by putting Neil Gorsuch's mother in charge of it. I mean, she ended up in, in a terrible uh, scandal, I think it involved bribery or something like that. Um, but, you know, going after that. Another is that labor unions are an, a, an interference in the marketplace, inappropriate interference in the marketplace. And therefore, uh, labor unions should be basically turned into social clubs. Another is that corporations should be able to seek uh, the cheapest labor anywhere in the world rather than just anywhere in the country. And therefore, we should not have national borders when it comes to uh, the ability of corporations to do that sort of thing, which is uh, generally known as free trade, so-called free trade. Another is that social safety net programs, Medicare, Social Security, unemployment benefits, um, that these are all interferences in the free market and distortions of the free market, and therefore we should do away with the social safety net. Uh, another is that any any function the government is doing outside of the military, and even the military and police functions and court functions, even those should be privatized to the extent they can, which is why today half of our defense budget goes to private corporations. Privatize everything you can. Another is that monopolies uh, in, in business and that massive wealth inequality are actually symptoms of an economy that's working the way it should. They are signs that those who have made it through the Darwinian 
uh, process in the marketplace and proven their worth, their brilliance, their competence are succeeding, uh, they should be congratulated. And then the, the corollary to that is that taxes should be very, very low on those who are the winners, the, the ones who have succeeded. And this is why today the average billionaire in America is paying about 3% in income taxes. And you know, about half of your major corporations in America pay nothing in taxes. These are all the symptoms of you know, 40 years of Reagan's neoliberalism. He, he adopted it. They, they started selling it in the 50s. Uh, the major salesperson in the United States was Milton Friedman. Um, and Reagan was the guy in 81 who basically said, we're going to reject Keynesian economics, Adam Smith economics, and, uh, and we're going to go with, uh, with Milton Friedman's neoliberalism. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so. Exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Okay, let's focus on one specific element, which is globalization. Certainly under Clinton, that train left the station. So what do we know? It has been proven time and again that Americans are cheap. Okay, they'll buy the ticket on Spirit Airlines with no perks, and they'll run to get on the plane, and they'll fight to put the stuff on the top, and then they'll bitch about it. Or certainly there are uh, add-ons with concert tickets, and StubHub experimented with a final price as opposed to putting all these add-ons at the end, and they lost business. So the question becomes, you know, there's so many items. Remember this first with VCRs. VCR was a $1,000 item, and then not long before their ultimate obsolescence, they were less than $100. So if you tell people, you know, if you do all this manufacturing in America, yes, that would solve theoretically if uh, – 
pay was high enough, the income status of those people working there would create jobs. But is the public willing to pay that much more money for their products in order to build local business? Well, it depends on how you define that much more. I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember what America was like before we had neoliberal trade policies. And, you know, Woolworths was full of cheap stuff. Uh, I remember in the early 1980s, uh, we moved to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a brand new Walmart down the street. And there was a giant banner on it that said 100% made in the USA. That was Sam Walton's big selling point. And it was filled with junk, cheap junk that was made here in America. Um, labor is not that much of the cost of most manufactured goods. Uh, you know, it, it, it might add two, three, four, five, maybe as much as six or 7% to the cost of some, or be the, you know, a percent of the cost of things. But but labor is typically not, and 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 the the cost of complying with environmental regulations is not that great. The bottom line is that corporations, by manufacturing over uh, offshore or overseas, and you know using two dollar an hour labor or fifty cent an hour labor or whatever it may be, instead of you know fifteen or twenty or thirty dollar an hour labor here in the United States, have been able to massively inflate their profits. But uh, there's you know, I don't believe that bringing manufacturing home is necessarily going to make American uh, enterprises uncompetitive. Although I do do agree with Alexander Hamilton that the way to and and with the Chinese that the way to do that is and with the South Koreans and the Japanese and the Europeans is that the way to do that is with a tariff based um, uh, global trade system. You know, uh, Alexander Hamilton's eleven point plan was brilliant. It built America. It was abandoned. Uh, you know, in the 1980s. And, and, and you said, you know, Clint, with Clinton, that train left the station. I think it's important to note that it was Reagan who was advocating free trade from the get-go it, because it's part of the neoliberal agenda. Uh, it was under Reagan that the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade was negotiated, I believe, um, that produced the gap that led to the World Trade Organization. It was under the Reagan-Bush administration, ultimately the George W. Bush or H.W. Bush administration finished the negotiations that negotiated NAFTA. That was not Bill Clinton's invention. That was George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, Clinton just signed on for it. And, and in large part, I think, frankly, he had no choice. I mean, that was, that was the point at which the, the Democratic Party had been defunded by Reagan's destruction of labor unions in the United States. And so, you know, uh, there is a, an interesting history there that we can get into if you want, Bob. It's kind of a discursion but, um, or a digression. Let's just stay on Clinton for a second. Did Clinton have sure. no choice but to undercut the social safety net, or is that just a choice he made for political advantage? I think both, really. Uh, step back a little bit. In, in 1976, the Supreme Court in the Buckley decision said, for the first time in the history of the United States or any developed country, that if billionaires want to own politicians, want to give politicians enough money that basically those politicians are beholden to them. And those politicians vote for things that the billionaires want or even introduce legislation on behalf of them. That's no longer called corruption or bribery. That's now called free speech. And that money is no longer considered to be money. Money is now considered to be a form of speech. That was a radical decision. Two years later, in a decision written by Lewis Powell himself, the, the First National Bank versus Frank Bellotti decision, uh, the Supreme Court said that that also applied to corporations. So when that happened, the Democratic Party was fat and happy. They were, you know, a third of America was unionized roughly. 
the unions were uh, washing cash, and they were the major funders of the Democratic Party. Um, the Republicans, not so much. So the Republicans just jumped into that with both feet, and Ronald Reagan floated into the White House on a tsunami of oil industry and 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 other big big corporate money, uh, but particularly the fossil fuel industry in 1980. He then took an axe to the unions. And over the next 12 years, cut unionization in the United States so much that in 92, when Clinton was looking at running for president, and Al Fromm writes about this in his book, you know, where he talks about him going down to Arkansas and hooking up with Bill Clinton and saying, let's, let's figure this out. When he was going to run for president, there just wasn't enough money from the unions to support that kind of thing. So basically, Clinton, you know, the, the Democratic Party was at, at, a, at a crossroads. The internet was not around, at least not the way it is today, so they couldn't raise money on the internet. Direct mail would never have worked to raise enough money to run for president. So the Democrats decided at that point, okay, you know, uh, the unions aren't here for us like they used to be. We'll start taking money from corporations. We'll just do it from the clean corporations. We'll get in bed with banks and insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, and we'll leave the steel and the chemicals and the, and the oil uh, companies to the Republicans. And... You know, as part of that, basically, this whole new Democrat movement, uh, the third way that Clinton and Al Fromm came up with, was that the Democrats would embrace neoliberalism. They just make it a slightly friendlier neoliberalism than the Republicans were embracing. And so, you know, Clinton just also was promoting the, the that list of tenets of neoliberalism that I gave to you earlier. And obviously, one of them is is dial back the social safety net. He wasn't willing to kill it altogether. He five-year term limited it, essentially, which produced a, an explosion in childhood poverty down the road. Uh, and But he did, as you, as you point out, you know, declare this is the end of welfare as we know it, and this is the end of the era of big government. And uh, uh, you know, these, these were the neoliberal statements. I think that at the time, Clinton believed that maybe neoliberalism actually was a good thing, that maybe it would work. You know, it really had only been tested in, in Chile's Pinochet, uh, Pinochet's Chile. And that was, you know, everybody said, well, that's an aberration. The guy's a dictator. Of course, he's going to kill people to you know, get, get his thing going. So it was still unknown. Okay. Steve Jobs famously had the distortion reality field such that if he got you to listen to him. You could see no other way. In your particular case, even someone who follows these topics very uh, closely, you have a very convincing way of making the argument, uh, illustrating it with points from history, from points from books. Why is there no equivalent politician? It certainly isn't Schumer. Pelosi's a little bit better. AOC's been somewhat ostracized. Bernie's Bernie's been great in terms of getting the message out. Whereas on the Republican side, whether they're saying truth or falsehood, they have a whole narrative that we just don't hear on the left. Yeah. Sheldon Whitehouse actually is doing a great job of exposing a lot of the, the, the structure on the right. But I think that the, the, the whether this is the point you're trying to make, Bob, or whether you're just uh, awakening this in me, I, I think that storytelling is the key to the whole thing. Uh, we are, as human beings, we are story machines. We love stories. We learn through stories. The way that culture has been transmitted in human societies for 300,000 years, as long as we've been on this planet, has largely been through stories. And before writing, oral traditions were entirely story-based. 
Um, you, you, you go back and look at some of the old Native American stories, like, uh, you know, the one from the Abenaki that I learned when I was in Vermont about, you know, a little boy who, who uh, went out in the woods and was going to solve all the world's problems with a magic stick. And he ends up, you know, having an interaction with a skunk. And there's a whole, it's a whole long story, and I'm not going to go through it right now. But the bottom line was that built into that story was the idea that you must always know where you are how not to get lost, how to know directions, how to enter, you know, what to do if you get sprayed by a, sk a skunk. Um, I mean, there's just like all these cultural stories built into it. And, and, and we have these, you know, we've been passing them down for, for a long, long time. The little boy who cried wolf, the, you know, the little boy who I identified the king with no clothes. Um, these are the ways that we learn. These are, the, you know, story is just so important. And Republicans have been pretty good at telling stories for years. And Democrats, frankly, I think, need to get better at it. Um, I tell a lot of stories in my books and on my show. Um, I, I think that it's an important way. Anytime you can wrap a lesson or, or a, uh, a point in a, an example, which is a story, um, and, and, and expand that to the point that, you know, it can be a, a, there's some ability to identify it. I think you're going to do a better job of communicating that. But not just communicating it, communicating it in a way that it will be remembered, because people remember stories. They very rarely remember data and details. Okay. What do we know? The ratings for 24-hour news channels on cable are insanely low, despite all the publicity about them. Network TV news, appointment news, although they're appealing to a very elderly audience, although that audience does tend to vote uh, at a higher percentage rate than those who are younger. So, prior to the internet, there was this incredible power, most not although it'd been forever, most noticeably harnessed by Rush Limbaugh. What is the power of talk radio today, less versus TV, but vis-a-vis -vis the internet? Well, on the internet, talk radio has been largely reinvented as podcasts. And, and I mean, you know, this is the space that you're, that you're living in. And uh, I think it's very powerful. I think podcasts have become a, a, a major piece of our, of our cultural fabric and one of the ways that people, people get a lot of information and learn a lot of things. Talk radio itself, uh, I, you know, don't get me started. <laughs> um, Limbaugh was a, was a genius. I mean, he was brilliant at doing talk radio. Uh, Michael Savage is brilliant at doing talk radio. There's a there's a there's a couple people out there who are Glenn Beck is very good at doing talk radio. Um, brilliant at they're all storytellers. It's what they do. They tell stories. And uh, when we started our show back in 2003, we we spent a lot of time. Uh, I mean, you know, dozens and dozens of hours listening to all the talk radio, all the right wing talk radio we could find, and, and trying to break down, you know, every hour. What are these people doing? How are they doing it? What are they doing? And and there's actually a, a formula to it, and um, you know, and it's a, it's a it's a fascinating one, um, but uh, I'm not seeing I'm I'm seeing less and less good competent talk radio being done, both on the right and the left, frankly, and more and more because talk radio is such an interactive environment. It's such a you know I'm talking to you. It's like a phone call. It's, it's, a, it's not, you know, television is this cold medium. I, Marshall McLuhan wrote about this. Television is this cold medium. It's like you're, you're looking in somebody's picture window. You know, you're, it's voyeurism, essentially. 
Radio is not. Radio is a very hot medium. It's right here. It's right in your ear. It's, 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 I'm, you know, one person having a communication with another. When I go on the air, I am, I always imagine I'm only talking to one person. Now that person changes from minute to minute, you know, and caller to caller, but I'm only ever talking to one person. And increasingly I'm, I'm hearing, you know, uh, people on the right uh, talk radio hosts who are just, you know, doing polemics and talking points, people on the left who are doing the same or just doing uh, interview radio, which is not talk radio. Uh, interviews work great on podcasts, um, uh, which is a slightly different medium. But uh, with talk radio, I think that the, 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 the basic tenets of the medium, which were developed in the 1930s by Father Coughlin uh, originally, and that Limbaugh reinvented for the 80s after you know, the death of Alan Berg, who kept him going through the 60s and 70s, um, those those tenets of talk radio are still very powerful, and if you do it well, and you and you tell stories and you talk to individuals, uh, you can build a fairly powerful medium. And like I said, I'm in fifteen hundred right wing talk, sta- talk stations all across the country, and some very effective uh, talk hosts on the right. Um, don't don't uh, underestimate the power of this to influence American politics. Okay, let's take a snapshot today, though, because. Teslas, if I have it right, come without AM receivers, although AM may go away and everybody be on FM. But we have a younger generation who wants everything on demand. And I know in your case, you have all your product on demand, but talking specifically about radio, is this a growing or shrinking market? Does it have to be reinvented to be on demand? Or is it just old people listening to it? real-time talk radio? Well, I think that, you know, radio has historically been a uh, listen-to-it-in-the-car medium. And uh, uh, an awful lot of talk radio is moving off AM stations and onto FM stations, by the way. Um, just, you know, it's just happening. Probably half the stations I'm on are FM stations. And, and the same is happening, you know, in, even in the heartland. Although, uh, you know, most people in Wyoming are not driving Teslas. <laughs> They're driving Ford pickup trucks and they've got AM radios, I guarantee it. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question or if I'm even well, speaking Well, I guess, to your you question. know, if we lock, talk about music, which is inherently short form, and the days of DJs telling long stories, creating theater of the mind are long gone, there are occasional exceptions. Okay, younger generations statistically do not listen to terrestrial radio. They're used right. to getting what they want on demand, and there are a lot of advertisements. Is this a dying medium? And if you have a voice, you ultimately have to segue, whether it be to podcast or some other means of distribution on demand, or it, is the marketplace irrelevant of whether it's AM or FM? Is it still strong? And is it only strong with older people or young people adopting? Those are all great questions. And I, I would, uh, uh, first of all, refer you to Michael Harrison, who publishes Talkers Magazine, who probably could cite chapter and verse and statistics right off the top of his head. I, I don't have that. But my sense of it is that talk radio took a big hit with the advent of podcasts and the Internet. Um, Limbaugh came out with his RushLimbaugh.com website and his Limbaugh podcast. Um, I, I'd have to go back and look. I don't recall when, but you know, at least a decade, decade and a half ago, um, and figured that out. And I think most 
people who have any kind of an audience on talk radio are doing the same thing. I, you know, certainly I do. Um, so, so that you can hit multiple markets, but I think you're, you're, I think you're right that, that radio has diminished as a market overall. Um, that said, I've, you know, our, our, our audience, I think over the last few, uh, over the last decade, certainly has been fairly stable, if not grown significantly. Um, so I, you know, where the industry is going, I'm not sure. But, uh, and, and, and I think that, you know, when you're looking at, um, I, I think demographically that slicing and dicing of it is really important that, that if you're looking at rural areas, radio is still very, very strong. If you're looking at urban areas and suburban areas, probably radio is a much smaller factor outside of the commute, outside of rush hour. And even there, you're seeing podcasts take a, take a good bite out of radio. Okay, let's talk about you specifically. Your distribution is almost incomprehensible. You're on commercial stations. You're on Sirius XM. You're on public stations. What is going on? Well, when we started the show uh, back in 2003, it, it, we were on a, a little network that was owned by uh, the UAW at the time. It was called uh, uh, IE America Radio Network. And uh, we were on 27 stations and Sirius XM, and, or Sirius at that time. Sirius and XM were competitors. And uh, as uh, they, that network went away after a couple of years, but as the show grew, um, we wanted to add the ability of people, well, to expand the ability of people to hear the show. And so um, I think probably around 2006 or 2007, um, we started uh, offering the show to nonprofit stations, community radio stations, uh, community t- TV stations, um, uh, NPR stations, whatever, you know, any, any nonprofit station who wants it. We bought a second automation system for our studio so that we could have a clean stream that didn't have any commercials in it. We insert, um, you know, nonprofit compliant content where the commercials are. So I, at the top of the hour, I do a book report, for example. I'll just read an excerpt from somebody's book. Um, and uh, while the commercials are playing on the commercial side. And, you know, we got pretty good pickup. We got uh, syndicated through the Pacifica Network, which is uh, substantial. It's got hundreds of affiliates. We're on the Pacifica audio port so that we're available to any any Pacifica station. Um, then as podcasts started picking up, and this was maybe a decade ago, um, we uh, added a, a staff person to chop the show up and put it up as a podcast and and got on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms um, about uh, maybe 13, 14, 15 years ago. I'm not sure when um, the CEO of, uh, uh, of Free Speech TV dropped by my studio to talk to me about something completely unrelated. And it was about a, a nonprofit that uh, he wanted me to be on the board of. And we got to talking and he said, uh, you know, why don't we try sticking a webcam you know, here in your studio and putting it on TV and see what happens. And at that time, Free Speech TV only had uh, one live show, which was Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Everything else was, um, you know, documentaries. And it was a fairly small audience. And so we stuck a webcam in my studio and suddenly it caught an audience, a TV audience. And uh, then, you know, Free Speech TV started growing and they added Randy Rhodes' show and they added Stephanie Miller's show and they, they added, uh, you know, a bunch of other programs. 
And uh, so, and the TV network has grown and it's now on, you know, Roku and it's on Hulu and it's on Apple TV and it's got its own web presence and it's on Dish and it's on Direct and, you know, all satellite receivers. And uh, so it's just, it's just been, you know, Bob, over the, over the, over the 19 years we've been doing this, it's like every time it seems like, hey, there's a market we should be in, you know, American Forces Radio was looking for a balance to Rush Limbaugh because they were getting complaints from soldiers who didn't want to hear just right-wing radio. And so, you know, they carry an hour of right-wing programming, they carry an hour of my show and have for, I don't know, well over a decade. Um, so it's like, you know, you look for opportunities and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a business. I mean, I'm running a small business. And, okay, so uh, let's, you know, so a business, there are economics of the business. What are your personal economics? I mean, you know, some places, you know, it's fascinating if people listen to on a commercial station, they'll hear ads. But if they listen to the streams after the fact, uh, certainly on public stations, they won't hear ads. So what are the economics of the business? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's operating on a whole bunch of different levels. Obviously, on the commercial side, you know, we make money selling advertising. Um, that's probably half of our total revenue, I, I would guess. Um, on the nonprofit side, uh, with regard to free speech TV, we, t- we get a small percentage of the fundraising that they do on our show that I do, the pitches that I do for them. Um, so that's not a loss to us that, that, uh, you know, co- in fact, we've got a, a full-time video guy now that covers, you know, that that covers, uh, so that we can provide them with a television quality pro- product. Um, with our podcasts, we sell advertising on the podcast. That's a revenue source. Our nonprofit, the only area that we don't directly monetize are the Pacifica radio stations, um, because there's really no way to monetize them, uh, outside of doing fundraising. And for those, uh, we've got a Patreon channel, uh, where you can get the station, get the show. And, uh, you know, we've got enough donors through Patreon and we explicitly say right on it that this is, this supports our ability to deliver this show to our nonprofits, to radio stations, the Pacifica radio stations. And, uh, the, the revenue from Patreon, uh, covers those expenses and a little more actually, uh, which is great. So, you know, we're able to, to pay our employees well and, and do a good program. We're not, you know, uh, I'm not rolling in my money bin here, but, uh, I'm not complaining. How many Patreon subscribers do you have and how many people on your payroll? I don't know how many Patreon subscribers we have. I'm sorry. My my webmaster handles that. And I haven't, uh, frankly, even looked at the Patreon page in probably two years. Um, it's probably a couple thousand. I, I just don't know. Um, with regard to, uh, or it might be over a thousand. I, I, frankly, I, just, I shouldn't even throw numbers out because I'm so disconnected from that. Um, what was the other question? How many employees? Oh, uh, we have, I have three full-time employees who, uh, uh, Sean, who produces the show and does, runs the audio board, Nate, who uh, does the video production and me. Um, uh, I have a part-time employee, another producer, uh, who works on, you know, guests and putting stuff up. We have, uh, a couple of people who work for us part-time, uh, down in Texas who cut the show up for the podcast. I've got a webmaster in Tennessee who does the technical end of the, of the, of this, uh, you know, that, that we pay every month. Uh, we've got a webmaster in uh, London who's an old friend. He's worked with me uh, for over 30 years now. Uh, we used to run forums on CompuServe together. Uh, Nigel Peacock, who uh, handles all the content of our web and runs TomHartman.com and HartmanReport.com. I've got a, a, a person who publishes our daily newsletter, which has a list of every story that I talk about on the air 
Uh, you can, it's free. It's advertising supported. It's over at uh, TomHartman.com. That's Sue. She lives in the UK also. She used to work with us in CompuServe. And, uh, and I've got an engineer who, you know, who I pay. Um, all those people are basically part-time or, or uh, uh, kind of a piecework kind of thing, hourly or whatever. But, uh, so that's, that's our staff. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's been well established that most people are living in silos today. Certainly, the New York Times has become a pejorative, even though the right tends to get all their basic news from the New York Times. If it's in the New York Times, they won't read it. So everybody is listening, and there are people who only read the New York Times. Do you feel that you're preaching to the converted at this point? You've been doing it a long time. Or do you see it as a job? Do you ever feel like you're banging your head against the wall? What's your personal viewpoint? Well, all of the above, Bob. I mean, welcome to our business, right? Um, but uh, no, I, I, I know that um, uh, largely, on certainly on the Pacifica stations, I'm preaching to the converted. I'm, I'm talking to people who have, who have looked for a left-wing outlet and are listening to it. On Sirius XM, it's a very different animal. I mean, you know, there are, there are two or three conservative channels on Sirius XM, and there's one liberal channel. And, uh, and, and then the urban view, uh, which largely serves as an African-American audience, which tends to be more progressive. But um, people are channel flipping on Sirius XM, and I get a lot of conservative callers there. And it's been fascinating over the years how many of them have stuck to me, have stuck to the show. 
And some of them are still calling in and, and arguing with me, which I love. My, my favorite thing in the whole world is debating conservatives. And, uh, and it's getting harder and harder because increasingly the, the high-profile conservatives will no longer come on my program. They used to all the time. You know, I'd get Stephen Moore and, and uh, you know, John Bolton and all these guys on the you know, last five, six, seven years. They just won't do it. Um, because they've got such a great echo chamber of their own, you know, why bother trying to go beyond that? Um, on our terrestrial radio stations, the AM stations, it's it's a little bit of both, although it tends to be more of a of a progressive audience. And, and on the podcast, I'm assuming that I'm talking to people who are more aligned with me, but I'm not really certain. Uh, it's not a, a medium that gives you that much feedback. Um, so, Can you change somebody's mind, or do you believe you're changing anybody's mind? I, I think I'm doing a couple of things. Um, number one, I'm providing people with validation. You know, no, you're not crazy. Um, here, you know, I agree with your worldview. And here, let me give you some, some details to fill that in. So number one, I think a lot of people tune into my show and to any podcast or radio show that's political, um, looking for validation of their worldview. Um, the second is I think I'm giving people ammunition to win what I call the water cooler wars. Um, you know, they've got the guy who sits next to them at work who listens to Limbaugh all day who wants to debate. Or they've got, you know, crazy Uncle Ralph who comes to the Thanksgiving dinner and can't stop talking about politics. And they want to have, you know, the one-liners to shut them down. Or they want to have the deeper understanding of the issues so that they can get into a meaningful discussion with people. And, and I try to provide that. Um, and then it, probably number three would be uh, that, you know, I'm hoping to change people's minds. And I, and I put that at number three. I mean, I would put it at number one if I thought enough people who weren't progressives were listening to me. But I put it at number three simply because, you know, most of the conservatives who listen to my show do so by accident. You know, like I said, they're channel flipping. Um, and uh, so, you know, the opportunities to change minds are much more limited. Okay. You say you love arguing with conservatives. What do you love about it? I find that debate is. And, 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 you know, let me just say right up front, I, 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 my favorite activity in high school was debate class, you know, the after the extracurricular debate. Um, and, and part of that is my dad. My dad was a historian. He wanted to be a history professor. I came along and he had to drop out of college and ended up working in a tool and die shop his whole life. But he had 20,000 books in his basement. And uh, most of them, probably a third of them were history books. He was a complete history junkie. And my and he was a Republican till the day he died. In fact, the, when he died, I was sitting with him in his living room and, as he died, and and um, and I looked at, over across him, and there were these his two favorite pictures on the wall: me shaking hands with Pope John Paul II and George W. Bush on the deck of the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln under a mission accomplished banner. Um, my dad and I, when I was a teenager, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, first of all, when I was 14, we, we went door to door for Barry Goldwater. Well, I guess I was 13 in 1964. Um, and uh, my dad never left that world. I, you know, I did by the time I was 16, I, I had become an anti-war hippie and, and uh, a liberal. Um, and my dad and I used to get in these knockdown, dragged out, <laughs> knockdown, drag out arguments when I was 16 and 17. Um, and through that, because we both loved each other and we're both well-informed uh, people who don't take debate lightly, um, through that, we learned, both of us, and I think my dad taught me this. I mean, we used to watch the Joe Pine show together. We used to watch Firing Line together with William F. Buckley. 
Um, we learned how to have debates where there was not blood on the floor when we were done. You know, debates that you could walk away from and shake hands. And it's a, it's a, almost an art form as much as a, a skill, as much as a science. And I've been able to bring that to my show, and I think fairly uniquely. I don't think that there's a lot of liberals out there who, who go out of their way to try to debate conservatives. I mean, it was the hallmark of my show, probably, for the first 10 years of the show. Three days a week, I'd have conservatives on, and we'd, we'd get into long-form long debates. Like I said, it's gotten much, much more difficult to get anybody who is willing to come on the program any longer. But um, I, I just... I, I love it. I, you know, it, uh, part of it probably echoes back to my, my childhood with my dad. Um, uh, but I, I do think that if you want people to understand issues, uh, spectators to understand issues, listeners to understand issues, one of the best ways to, to highlight issues is to have a debate, to have both sides present everything they can, bring all their ammunition to the table, present all their arguments and all the history for their arguments. And, and then, you know, let the, let the audience decide who won the debate. I'm not so interested in whether I win or lose. My, my interest is in informing people, educating people. And, and, you know, not that I'm some, you know, highfalutin educator here, but that's my goal. My goal is for people to walk away from listening to a debate that I've had or an argument, whether it's with a caller, which happens more and more these days, as opposed to guests, sadly, um, or a guest. In, you know, with more information um, so that they can then, you know, bring that into their lives in a way that's useful. Okay. When we were growing up in the 60s and 70s, the issues were really debated, whereas mm -hmm. Trump, uh, we can see with uh, Letitia's uh, filing just the other day, he's just lying, lying, and lying. And the people who are aligning with him are lying. So... What do you do in a debate if the person is just telling untruths? You call them out. <laughs> you just have to say, "I'm sorry, that's BS." You know, back that up. Give me, give me, a, give me something to 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 you know to believe that what you're saying is true because it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, that's pretty straightforward, Bob. Okay, so let's go back. The to problem that. is that the people who who rely on lies, you know, the Trumps, they will not engage in debate. They will not participate. I mean, you know, Trump goes out of his way to have any, any protesters removed and beaten up. It's like it's the antithesis of debate. Okay, but let's say we're in that uh, classic situation you referenced earlier. It's a family dinner. It's Thanksgiving. You're going to be around each other a few hours. What do you tell your listener how to debate and engage that uncle? Now, for years, a lot of people say no politics on Thanksgiving. But right. certainly there are people who go there anyway. So assuming someone from your audience is encountering that situation, what would you tell them? I would tell them that uh, family is more important than, than politics and that, um, and that love is more important than winning an argument. Um, that, uh, you know, when I debate politics with neighbors or with family, uh, it, because people are constantly trying to, you know, bait me, basically. Um, I'll make my point. I'll make it gently. And, uh, if they, you know, go on a rant trying to knock down my point and it's a BS rant or whatever, or it's a rant that I don't think has much uh, validity rather than humiliating them by pointing that out or embarrassing them. Um, I'll just say, you know, I guess we're going to have to agree to disagree on this. 
And, and you know, from time to time, I'll even do that on the air. Again, I, I, I'm trying to to uh, to role model this for people as well as I can. Okay, my experience is no one will change their viewpoint during the debate, but they might go home and think about it and change their opinion. As you said, the majority of your listeners lean left, but if you had the experience with anybody you've debated on the air, whether it be a politician or someone who calls in where they, you connect with them later and say, well, you know, I've rethought that, you know, maybe you're right. I have uh, uh, a handful of regular callers, probably a dozen or two, who uh, over the last couple of years, uh, three of them I can think of just in the last three or four months, who called in because they were listening to right-wing radio on Sirius XM uh, in most cases. Uh, one of them was on our Chicago affiliate. And, um, you know, looking for right-wing stuff, they found my show. Um, they found it interesting. They called me up to argue with me, um, you know. I had debates with them that were respectful. I mean, occasionally somebody will just be so offensive that you just slap them down, but generally not. And um, and now they call the show regularly, and a number of them, I'd say uh, all but one of them, uh, no longer call themselves conservatives or Republicans. Um, I've you know uh, I've seen them change, and I I'd like to think that it's because the information that I'm presenting is actually factual. Um, I, I will not go into a debate unless I really know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to present information. I mean, maybe this is the, the author in me. You know, you get editors who are, you know, your line editor goes through your book and, you know, every single point I make, I have to back it up or the publisher will not put it out. And and uh, so you get pretty rigorous about those things. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I hope that they are, uh, becoming regular listeners and are changing their politics, not just because I'm very persuasive, but because I've actually marshaled truth or what they've perceived as truth. Okay, let's talk about party affiliation. There's certainly died in the wool Democrats, died in the wool Republicans. But I have found, certainly since the rise of the right wing, that the vast majority of people who call themselves independent are really Republicans. They just don't want to be in the debate. What has your experience been? It's been the same as yours, Bob. Uh, I, 95% of the people who call into my show and, and say, hey, I'm an independent. I just vote for the person. I don't vote for the party. I don't care. I don't give a damn about the Republican Party. But, but them damn immigrants in Obama. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're bashful Republicans. Yeah, you know, I always tell them, when was the last time you voted for a Democrat? And they go, oh, and they, they can't think of one. You've led quite a peripatetic life and career. How did you end up in talk radio and staying with talk radio? Because if you look at your career, you tend to jump, you know, from advertising, therapy to all kinds of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, uh, probably because I, I, I'm an ADHD person, I suppose. I wrote a couple books about it, actually. Uh, I have been a serial entrepreneur throughout my life. I, Louise and I have started uh, a number of businesses, uh, five of them that were, you know, consequential and did fairly well. And uh, because back when we were first married, uh, we were reading the novels of John D. MacDonald, uh, the Travis McGee novels. And you know, his whole thing was, I'm not going to wait until I retire to enjoy my life. I'm going to take my retirement while I'm young in pieces. And so our the agreement that we had when we got married was that, you know, every five years or so, we would take a year off and, and explore the world. 
And, you know, thank God we've been able to do that. We build a business up, we sell it off, we live off that for a year, and there's enough left over to start another business. And, uh, you know, we did that uh, up until 97. And in 97, I sold an ad agency in Atlanta and uh, that Louise and I had built and on a seven-year buyout. And so we had a, a, a real cushion, you know, a, a seven-year cushion plus some retirement funds. And I figured that's it. You know, I'm retired now. Um, I'm going to write books and, and just have a good time. And uh, then George Bush became president. And by 2003, I was convinced that he represented a threat to, to our democracy, that, that his policies, you know, his, his uh, going after Iraq and Afghanistan un, uh, inappropriately, unnecessarily lying us into the war in Afghanistan, um, torturing people, um, you know, just breaking American law. It just, it just made me nuts. And uh, so I wrote this piece, I wrote this article in, in, the, in early, either late 2002 or early 2003 and published it on Common Dreams. I had started publishing op-eds on Common Dreams starting around 2001. Common Dreams is a well-known progressive website, commondreams.org. And, um, you know, these, these uh, short op-eds, uh, rants, as it were. And in 2003, I wrote one called Talking Back to Talk Radio. And it was about how you know, half the country is Democratic, half the country is Republican. All of the radio stations are Republican. Why is nobody programming uh, Democratic radio? And um, uh, Shelley and Anita Drobny, who were venture capitalists in Chicago, called me up and said, hey, uh, this is an idea. This is great. We would like to use your article as the initial business plan for a new radio network that we want to call Air America Radio. Can you come out to Chicago and talk to us? Whoa, whoa, a little bit slower, because a lot of people say it just happened. Just to be clear, you just publish one article, someone tracks you down, that's it. You were not putting out feelers, you did not say in the article, I want to be in the radio game, just somebody called you out of the blue. Is that the way it really went down? That actually, yes. Now, in the article, I did point out that when I was young, I did radio. I, I, when I was 16, I was, you know, I started in radio at 16 in commercial radio on WITL on Lansing. I was a DJ, a country western DJ for a couple of years. I did rock and roll. I bounced around a few radio stations. I ended up doing news back at WITL for seven years uh, until 1978. And so I, knew, I know radio. I knew the business. I know how it works. And I said that in the article. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't like I was just some guy who wrote a piece. I mean, there was some credibility there. But anyhow, they, they came to me and they, you know, and I flew out to Chicago and, and uh, I told them that uh, I, I had some problems with their business plan. And uh, but they were looking for proof of concept. So Louise and I called uh, the, the, the all 14 or so of the radio stations in Vermont. We were living in, in Montpelier at the time and said, uh, you know, wait, wait, uh, just one second. As someone who went to college, Vermont, spent a lot of time in Vermont, why Montpelier? Uh, we, we just wanted to live there. <laughs> just, but for know, those we, we of us who know Vermont, Montpelier is its own backwater in Vermont. You're Although right. it's the capital city, you know, it's in the north. So it's somewhat, there's the, the, you know, right. what, you know, so you just, I mean, Montpelier, if you think about living in Vermont, that would not be the first place most people would choose. Well, actually, we first moved. We bought a, an old B&B in Northfield uh, way back in the woods. Uh, it had a half mile long driveway up the side of a mountain. Uh, there was dirt road. Um, and then uh, we sold that after a couple of years and moved into into, into town, into Montpelier, because we were just missing, you know, being able to walk to a restaurant or something. 
and the winters there are pretty pretty brutal. But anyhow, so we called you know all the radio stations in Vermont, and we we found this one station in Burlington that where the guy said, "Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you two hours on a Saturday morning if you want to do a test run on Progressive Talk Radio." I mean, that was my pitch. I you know I'd like to I'd like to prove you know this proof of concept, and if it works, you know you can carry the show. If it doesn't, you know nothing ventured, nothing gained. You can sell ads on the show, and maybe I can get an audience for you. And so he put us on, uh, uh, Bob, I'm forgetting his last name. Uh, he put us on after the, uh, after the uh, swap meet. So about half the calls I'd get were, you know, is that John Deere 320 still available? Um, but it was good practice. And, uh, and, and Ed Asner was kind enough. We had a mutual friend. And uh, in fact, he blurbed my book on healthcare a little while ago um, uh, before he died. Um, Ed Asner did an interview with me and, and, uh, we took that and some of my rants and we sent it off to that network that I was telling you about, IE America radio network. And they picked up the show. And that was when we went from being this little tiny thing on this one station in Burlington, Vermont, that had probably 35 people listening, um, who were half of whom were pissed off that the swap meet wasn't still on to, uh, actually being a radio show. It took air America a couple of years to get their act together and get their network going. And during that period of time, I was just building my show. So that's, you know, and, and it started, it, it wasn't, we, we funded the entire thing ourselves for the first four years. We didn't, we didn't break even until about the third or fourth year. Um, and, 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 you know, over the years, we've made that money back, but that was coming out of our retirement money and, uh, or what was intended to be our retirement money, because I thought of myself as retired and I didn't expect it to last more than four or five years at the very most. I, you know, I was just trying to prove that it was possible to do. If you follow the rules of talk radio and they're not complicated and they've been around since the 1930s, if you follow the rules of talk radio, you can be just as successful as a Democrat as you can as a Republican, given there's enough radio stations to carry. you, And that's the big kicker right now is that the big networks I had, uh, I sat in the office of a United States Senator with the billionaire owner of one of the big three radio station conglomerates, you know, the owner of about 900 radio stations. And uh, the senator uh, said, you know, uh, why don't you put some progressive radio on your stations? You've got 340 stations that are carrying right-wing radio. And the guy said, uh, and I've never seen a senator literally have their mouth fall open when somebody says, the guy says, uh, I'm never going to put anybody on the air who wants to raise my taxes. I mean, just like, it's just that simple. And so, you know, we've got a we've got a structural problem in terms of progressive or democratic talk radio. But there's no there's no question that you can successfully do progressive talk radio. I've been doing it for 19 years. I'm making money on it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale, extend your spine, remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Okay, if one looks at your website and follows through, you're doing three hours of radio a day, you're writing opinion columns, you're writing books, what is your schedule such that you can accomplish all that? Well, and let me add, the pandemic has helped. Um, My schedule is, uh, Louise and I get up at 5.30 in the morning. And uh, we put together that day's show between 5.30 and, and roughly 7.30. Um, you know, uh, Sean may have booked a guest. If we've got a guest, then, you know, we'll do the research on that. But basically, we're going, you know, we just will read 10 or 20 news sites and come up with what are, the, what are going to be the main themes for each hour. And, uh, you know, what are we going to talk about? And then I, I, you know, I go into the studio and we go on the air at 9. This is all Pacific time. We go on the air at nine and we're on until noon. Um, you know, for the next half hour, I do, you know, I'll read ads for sponsors and just do whatever needs to be done, you know, to, to clean up the, the, the business. And then I leave the studio. Uh, Sean and Nate stay there and Nate produces all of our stuff for YouTube and everything. And Sean uh, puts together the stuff for the podcast. I come home and from one until five every day, I write my op-ed that we publish at Hartman Report uh, every morning. Um and uh and then my i write books on weekends um all day all day saturday all day sunday uh you know i'll take a break for for meals or to visit family and things like that um uh, and and you know i've written i've been writing all my life and i've been writing for publications since the mid 90s and so i'm i'm pretty good at it and it 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 you know it works I've been, I've been, these, this new series of books, the Hidden History series, the new one is the Hidden History of Neoliberalism. There are 35,000 word books. That's half the size of a normal book. And so banging one of those out every six months is kind of the equivalent of writing one real book, one major book, you know, 80, 90,000 word, 100,000 word book a year, which is what I used to write. And uh, I've always been able to produce one a year kind of in my spare time. Okay. You talk about writing your op-ed from one to five. Mm-hmm. A, how much is that as research? And I consider research just reading the news. Uh, you know, you might also ultimately go to check facts or to find certain information out. And 
to what degree is it a chore to write every day? Or is every day you say, you know, I got a form, I get myself in the right mindset and I can just bang it out? You know, I, I have to, uh, th- this is kind of one of our, our rules of life for, for my wife and I is that, you know, we do what we love doing. And when we stop loving doing it, <laughs> we don't do it. <laughs> it's just, um, and, and so it's the same way with the, the writing. I mean, I've got to write about stuff that I really am inflamed about, that I really care about. And I think that that's, you know, just wise anyway, because otherwise you're not going to produce something that lights anybody else up, you know. So when I come home, Louise and I have lunch, you know, typically at 1230. And, um, and then I come up here to write at one. And, uh, you know, our job during that 30 minutes is to figure out what the topic is going to be for my op-ed that day. We have a, a little uh, uh, web-based uh, wiki page on which we keep all of our ideas for future op-eds. And we see, see articles and stick them on there. We'll have a conversation and we'll stick that on there, you know, on our smartphones. Um, and so we'll refer to that page and we'll look it over and we'll look over the news because we've been doing that all day with the show and figure out, you know, what's the rant today going to be about. And then I come upstairs, and typically the first hour or so before I start writing, I'll, I'll, I'll outline my piece, what are the major points I'm going to make, and then I know what I need to know to back up the points that I'm going to make. And so, you know, from one to two, basically, I'm doing research, um, you know, bouncing around the internet or looking through books that I've got or whatever, whatever sources I need to find. And sometimes that takes two hours. Sometimes it only takes 20 minutes. It depends on the topic. There are a lot of topics that I can write literally off the top of my head. There are others where I really have to do a lot of research. I did a piece uh, three or four weeks ago about how militias are illegal in every state in the Union and have been since, uh, you know, the 1880s. And uh, nobody's enforcing those laws and private militias. And that took probably three hours of research. And, and that day I was writing until six o'clock. I missed Chris Hayes' show. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, and then, you know, the rest of the day, you know, after, after I get done writing, I go downstairs. Louise usually has dinner ready at five and we'll watch Chris Hayes on MSNBC. And then, you know, uh, Alex or, or uh, Rachel after that. And then we knock off. We go upstairs and we'll watch uh, some show on, on, you know, Netflix or something or, or read, uh, you know, or, or visit people. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, I turned off my phone. I'm sorry. I didn't turn off my watch. I don't know how to do that. Um, so that's our day. Any, uh, specific, uh, Netflix or other streaming show you're hot on? Uh, we just finished watching the Sopranos cause there's, you know, the old Sopranos, which you never saw cause we didn't have a TV back then in the, in the, in the late nineties. Um, and early 2000s, and, and uh, because I guess there's a sequel coming out that we were curious about. But, you know, I've got a list of this on my phone here that I can, uh, my binge watching. Uh, in the last year and a half or two years, we've watched The Sopranos, Silent Witness, uh, MacGyver, FBI, 1881, NCIS Hawaii, Yellowstone, Snowpiercer, Monk, Yellowstone, Hawaii Five O, the original, uh, Columbo, Macmillan and Wife. We went back and watched those. Um, what we do in the shadows, person of interest, bones, secession, silent witness, good fight, billions, the father Brown, death in paradise, the finder, CSI Miami. I mean, it's kind of game of Thrones, outlander, killing Eve, magic city, doc Martin, blacklist. Yeah. We get a idea of your taste going yeah. back to books. 
Mm-hmm. Although you get a certain amount of publicity, except for the huge bestsellers, historically books sell very few copies. What has your experience been? Is it more of a labor of love? What's the motivation? I, I, uh, that's a really good question, Bob. I, uh, Ernest Hemingway once said uh, that. I don't remember the exact quote. It's been so many years since I even thought about it. But he once said, basically, um, as an author, you gain a certain little bit, tiny little bit of immortality. Um, Sometimes I think about my writing as the stuff I hope my grandchildren will discover. They probably won't. But, you know, I mean, I I used to... uh, after my dad died, I discovered some of the letters that he wrote home when he was in the army during World War II. And it just tore me up. And I and I realized how much I had lost. I, I wish I had had those kind of insights into my grandparents and even great grandparents. So, you know, in a way, I, I think I'm I'm writing for posterity, as it were. In a way, I've got things that I want to say that I think are important. And uh, writing a book is a great way to do that. Um you know, it's it's provided me with some income over the years. Uh, a couple of books have done very, very well. Um, you know, I've got a couple of books that have been in print for literally decades. Uh, one of them is in print in 19 different languages. Um, you know, it's sold a lot of copies. Um, so, uh, you know, it's something I like to do. It's something I'm good at. My mother was an English major at MSU, and uh, she was a frustrated writer. She tried to write children's books when I was young and, and kind of modeled for me the self-discipline of writing. And, um, and I often think of her. I, you know, sometimes I think I'm, I'm writing to her. Um, so, and, and in fact, uh, my parents gave me uh, a portable typewriter when I was 10 years old. And my dad, when I was 13, uh, first year of uh, junior high school, uh, demanded that I take a typing class because my typing was so atrocious. And I was in this class with like 28 girls and me, which was just humiliating, embarrassing. Um, you know, it was like 1972. And, uh, but it was the best skill I ever learned. I'm so grateful that my father forced me to do that. Uh, so now I'm much more effective. You know, I, I can write, re- I can type really fast and so I can write better. But uh, I just love doing it. I, I, I really love writing, uh, just like I love doing radio. I had the same experience with typing. I mean, especially computers came in, knowing how to type is unbelievable. So in yeah. our conversation, you've mentioned Ed Asner. You've talked about politicians. Are you, okay, in Los Angeles, it's a world of networking. Traditional fiction authors tend to be isolated. Where do you sit? Do you like the incoming people track you down? Or do you go out of your way to have relationships with Ed Asner? You famously have a relationship with Leonardo DiCaprio, with politicians. Where do you sit on that? I'm an odd duck, although I think that I'm probably the norm for radio, but I'm definitely the exception for television. And that is that I'm an introvert. I'm basically a, a shy person. I, I don't speak up. I'm intimidated by crowds. I get panic attacks in, in uh, cocktail parties. I hate cocktail parties. Um, you know, you put me in a room with 30 people, I can't deal with it. Put me on a stage in front of 5,000 people, I have no problem. I can do that well. I have learned how to pretend to be an extrovert. Um, but if I've got to make small talk, I don't know how to do it. 
we went to an HOA meeting here in the neighborhood where I live a couple of nights ago, and, and I basically ran out of there as soon as it was over. And I'm on one of the committees. I should have stuck around and played politician. I can't do that. I'd make a lousy politician. I don't know how to shake hands with people and, 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 and do that. It, it, it frightens me. It intimidates me. So, and, and I think that that's common in radio. I, you know, I got to know Larry King before he died. And he was another, you know, an, a, a, an introvert who knew how to pretend he was an extrovert. And uh, I've heard that Rush Limbaugh is like that. I know for a fact that Michael Savage is like that. I don't know him, but I know, you know we have uh, friends in common. Um, so I, my, my social circle is really quite small. And I have never tried to network with anybody, you know, to advance my show or my books or anything else. The, the friendships that I've made over the years that might appear to be high profile, you know, uh, like Ed Asner or, or uh, Leo DiCaprio or whatnot, um, were kind of accidental things that, that you know, uh, Leo read one of my books and his mother reached out to me, for example. And, and uh, Ed, uh, you know, I invited him on my show and, and, and we just kind of hit it off, just the two of us, you know. So uh, I, I, I probably to my detriment that I'm that incompetent in that area of being, the, you know, the gland handing networker. Let's talk about Ed or Leo. You have a moment of connection. They're doing the show where there's a project. Do you have any social contact beyond maybe once a year? How you doing? Yeah, that's, that's largely it. I mean, you know, Leo and I have uh, worked together on, I think, six uh, projects. Three, three or four uh, short little 10, 15 minute uh, uh, YouTube videos that live, you know, little movies that live on, on YouTube and uh, three or four uh, larger, longer, you know, full length. Um, uh, these are all about climate change. Um, and so, you know, when you collaborate on those things, you get to know people a little bit better. Um, but mostly it's, you know, if I'm in town, hey, how are you? I've become very close friends with his father. He, I, I think of uh, George DiCaprio as one of probably my 10 best friends, you know, in the world. And, and you know, like I said, my social circle is very small. Uh, George and I talk regularly, um, which has nothing to do with Leonardo. Um, just because, you know, we, we have, we're, we're kind of really similar people in a lot of ways. And, and I, I just, you know, sometimes you just strike it off with people. And, and you know, with Ed, um, when he was married to Cindy, uh, you know, we used to get together when I come to Los Angeles, you know, for business, whatever I had to do. Um, but, you know, I don't think we've probably had dinners together more than, I don't know, 10 or 15 times. But, you know, we keep in touch. I, you know, I, uh, there's a few other people who are real high profile. I'm not in, big into name dropping, but, you know, that I, that I stay in touch with uh, largely because they reach out to me from time to time. How about politicians? Same story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bernie was on my show every Friday for 11 years. And, uh, you know, I, I got to know him well as a consequence of that, but we were never social friends. Bernie's all about business, you know, uh, and God bless him for it. He's, I think it makes him effective. Uh, right now, Ro Khanna and uh, Mark Pocan are on my show regularly. They, you know, we have conversations and email from time to time, but, you know, we're not, I'm not networking with them, or nor are they with me, I don't think. Um, we're all about the mission, as it were. Okay. So you do your show very frequently. You know who your audience is. Anybody who's in doing a performance that frequently tends to know what their audience wants. 
To what degree are you beholden, which I know is a strong word, to your audience? Or to what degree do you say, man, it's my show, I'm going to do whatever I want? Or do you sit there and go, oh, this may be a little much for my audience, or eh, I'm not going to want to hear this? Yeah, are you talking in terms of, of topics, or are you talking in terms of, of you know, style slash uh, uh, production? I'm talking topics. Oh, okay. Well, you have, I mean, you know, uh, I, the, the basic rule of any, any kind of media is never violate your audience's expectations, or if you do, do so in a way that is ultimately satisfying to them. So I'd say in that regard, you know, I'm, I'm largely, you know, nine, well over 90% beholden to my audience in as much as if I lose my audience, I don't have a show. Um, that said, my audience is largely uh, thinking the same way I am. They're just looking to me for data and entertainment, presumably. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, there are times that I'll, I'll bring topics up. For example, I'm, I'm fascinated by spirituality. I was really into spirituality when I was young. Um, I, I, uh, I took acid when I was 15 and it changed my life. I mean, it just, and, and I got real into, into this one particular church, uh, in my later teenage years and early twenties. And, um, even got ordained in that church. I, I, uh, I, I, I just, you know, I've, I, I was into the the esoteric philosophers, into um, kind of new age uh, stuff. I went through a period of meditation, transcendental meditation. I still meditate. You know, I although now I use a, uh, a neurofeedback headband <laughs> to meditate. Um, but it's a big deal for, for me. It's a big topic. It's a big part of my life. I, I, I literally pray every morning. And, you know, occasionally I'll go off on a rant about that on the air. And in particular, uh, my affection for uh, Jesus's words in Matthew 25, uh, you know, the parable of the sheep and the goats and the, and the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, and I love it, when, particularly when some conservative will call in and, and try to promote their vision of Christianity as being, you know, consistent with Donald Trump or something like that. And, and I can, I've read the Bible four times, cover to cover. I, I, I did it, frankly, as a way of getting to sleep. I've always, I've had trouble sleeping my whole life. And I, you get, if you got these through, through the Bible in a year Bibles, you know, where it's pre-divided into 365 slices and uh, you read one every night. And I found that they just put me to sleep. I mean, you know, it's, it's just perfect for me. It, it unwinds me. And so for four years in a row, back in the, in the, in the 80s, in the early 80s, I, I read the Bible cover to cover. So I can, I can argue those things pretty effectively. Um, so, you know, th th that's not progressive talk radio at all, um, although I think Jesus was the original progressive, so arguably it is, I suppose. Um, you know, I don't talk very much about my drug experiences as a young person on the air, although I acknowledge them. I'm not ashamed of it. In fact, I think, you know, it was a good thing for me. Um, but I'm not recommending it to anybody else who's certainly the age I was then. Um, so, you know, I, I guess my answer is kind of wishy-washy here, Bob, but, um, but I think that you, you have to keep your audience in mind, certainly. It's not just, you know, this isn't, I, I don't have a radio show just so I can, you know, yell into the, into the void.
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stan the Queen of Tejano. And stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Let's go back to some of the issues. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine. Needless to say, many people thought that uh, Putin and Russia would just run right over Ukraine. That did not happen. However, and these scenes change every day, so it'll be a week before people will hear this, and you never know, something major could happen. Uh, What I mean is like, Putin literally losing power. We saw how these things happen overnight, and there have been all these protests, and he's conscripting people now. But Putin historically doesn't want to lose face. So irrelevant of Ukraine's capabilities and successes, one might say Putin's never going to tuck his tail between his legs and say, I lost. How does this play out? I don't know. I mean, I'm very concerned about this. My my sense of it is that um, Putin, very much like every other uh, dictator run, who runs on narcissism, um, knows that if he loses or if he's seen as being weak, basically, the thing that keeps him in power is that everybody's afraid of him and that he's and that he's perceived as being essentially infallible. Um, this was the the engine on which Mussolini ran, Hitler ran, Franco ran. Uh, Duterte ran. Uh, Erdogan is running right now. Um, I mean, this this is the dictator's playbook: is you've got to have people afraid of you. You know, they can love you, but and, and respect you, but fearing you is the most important thing. And people only fear you if they see you as essentially omnipotent or or you know uh, unbeatable. And so Putin, I think, has already passed the point where the uh, image of him as the as this. Uh, 
invincible man on horseback, bare-chested, has been shattered. And I don't think he's going to recover from this. Um, whether his own government, you know, whether he's going to face a palace coup, uh, whether he's going to decide, okay, it's time to check out, and I'm just going to retire to my dacha with my mistress and add a billion dollars, uh, or whether something, you know, far more terrible is going to happen to him, or whether he's going to, like Hitler did in his last days, I wrote an op-ed about this actually a couple of weeks ago, um, a good friend of mine, a, a dear friend of mine, Armin Lehman, Armin and I, um, back when Louise and I owned an ad agency, I, I used to travel the world teaching advertising and marketing in the travel industry. And Armin was doing that. We both worked with the same company. And, uh, you know, we've probably been to 20 countries together and spent a lot of time on airplanes and in hotels. And one day, uh, and Armin had this thick German accent, and he's about, I don't know, 15, 10, 15 years older than me. And one day, uh, Armin uh, took me aside and said, uh, I'm, I think, I'm thinking about it, writing a book about my experience as a young person, and I wanted to tell you about it. I haven't talked to anybody about it in 20 years. I said, what is it? And he said, well, when I was 16 years old, I was drafted into the Hitler Youth, and it was 1945, and I was the courier who hand-delivered the note to Adolf Hitler that the war was lost. If you've seen the movie Downfall, that little kid who comes in, a 16-year-old kid who hand, that was my friend Armin Lehmann. And, 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 and that began a whole brand new kind of conversation between me and Armin. And Armin wrote his book. You can find it on Amazon right now. It's called In Hitler's Bunker. And uh, Armin has now passed away. But um, Armin told me those stories of Hitler's final days and that Hitler, in the, in, you know, when it became evident to him that he was losing, maybe a few weeks or a few months out, he actually welcomed the Allied destruction of Germany. He felt that the German people had let him down. He, at that point, he hated the German people because they had failed him. He hated the German army because they had failed him. He, he had ordered his army to, to blow up Berlin, he, you know, at least according to Armin. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't checked this with history, although years, you know, we lived in Germany for a year in the 80s. And, and I read uh, Schurer's book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. I just don't remember the details of that. But um, I'm concerned that Putin might have that same mentality of I'm going down in flames and, and I'm going to take somebody with, you know, this is, this is what you see with these people who go out and kill 10 people and then commit suicide. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. Um, you know, the, the, the kid in Newtown, it's the same mentality. It's this, it's this deep psychopathic narcissism. And if Putin decides that he's going to go down in flames and bring a whole lot of people with him, that might mean nuclear war. And that's the thing that makes that wakes me up at night. That's the thing that concerns me the most. Okay. Recently, there have been elections and uh, the right made, as they use the term populist, which many people used to think was a left term, but is now certainly a right wing term. In Sweden, they've made progress. In Italy, they made progress. They're threatening in France. Certainly, we have our own situation in America. What do you think explains this? And are we going to come out the other side? Never mind Orban and Hungary. But what's yeah. happening here? Well, I think actually Orban in Hungary is is instructive because Orban built his political empire. I was in Hungary the the, the year that Orban came to power. Um, Orban built his political empire on trashing brown skinned immigrants coming to Hungary. His slogan was, you know, build the wall, right? Make, make Hungary great again, 
And he campaigned on building a wall on the southern border to keep out the Syrian refugees. And by the way, he did. He built that wall. And it's heavily militarized right now. So uh, I think, you know, like, for example, about Sweden, most people don't realize um, just day before yesterday, there were three bombings in Sweden. That's there have been more than 500 bombings now in Sweden in the last in the last five years. It, it, it is a crisis in Sweden and almost and, and, and shootings. Sweden now has more shootings than any other country in Europe. And almost all of this is coming out of the immigrant community that was welcomed when when, you know, the, the Arab Spring happened. And then, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Bashir al-Assad was, you know, well, actually, what what started the whole thing was climate change drove all these farmers off their land in northern Syria. They came into Damascus, started demanding food. Assad started shooting at them. Suddenly you got a civil war and now you got this refugee crisis going into Europe. The ability of a society to absorb people who are not recognizable by other people in that society, either because of how they look or how they speak or, or how, they, how they dress and live, is limited. I mean, there's been a lot of good research on this. You know, a society can absorb one or two percent a year of, of people who are, quote, not part of the society and, and integrate them into the society. But when you start absorbing three, four, five percent, the society starts to reject that, that you get this backlash. And that backlash takes the form of what looks like racism. And in many cases, it is. It's just plain old overt racism or xenophobia. But, you know, it might not have been there had there not been or it might not have been taking that form had there not been that that influx of of new people. And uh, I don't think that we're anything close to those kinds of threshold numbers here in the United States of refugees and migrants. But Fox News and the right are doing their best to try to convince people that we're at that point. You know, there's a caravan coming right every election, every two years, there's a, a, a border crisis. Because it'll stir up, you know, fear and hate, and fear and hate are great motivators to get people to the to the to the polls. So, I think that there is um, a crisis uh, that has to do with this issue, this immigration issue, um, or the refugee issue. I think it's going to get a hell of a lot worse over the next five years as climate change continues. I mean, we're seeing Guatemalan refugees on our southern border because. You know, a, a measurable and significant percentage of that country has desertified in the last decade, has turned in, you know, from farmland into desert because of climate change. And people are being pushed off subsistence farms and there's no place to go. And they go into the cities and the gangs just, you know, make mincemeat out of them. And so they flee to the United States or they flee into Mexico. Mexico is dealing with a huge influx of, uh, uh, you know, crisis level influx of migrants from Central America. So I think that this is this is going to be a uh, a longstanding issue and a longstanding crisis. I don't see any easy solutions to it. It fractures societies, and it uh, plays into right wing narratives and stimulates because it frightens people. It stimulates uh, you know right wing uh, political movements, which are typically based on fear or on hate, and uh, and and very often hands victories to right wing movements as it just did in Sweden. Okay. The Republicans are all on the same page. They line up. We certainly have seen this with Trump. People said Trump was the worst and then kowtowed to him. Democrats, they say it's a big tent. So we have a president who is essentially 80, okay, Uh, not even a boomer, 
pre-boomer. And on the other extreme, we have someone like AOC. Now, of course, we have to look AOC is elected as a representative in a district in the state of New York. But she is very verbal and vocal. In the last major election cycle, she said, if you leave me in control, I know how to deal with the internet. I know how to stimulate the younger generations to vote. Now, not all the examples were in her favor. What do you tell? Because we have traditional Democrats, as I mentioned earlier, Schumer and Pelosi, who are trying to go to the center. And the narrative created wherever is you must run to the center. Never mind the center is further right than it's been in our lifetimes. But do we follow AOC? Is it about the youth? Do we move to the center? What are your thoughts? I think it's important to do both. I think that we have to acknowledge that there are uh, people in what might be called the middle who are concerned about crime, who are, are dealing with homelessness. I mean, we're certainly, we've got this problem here in Portland right now, and it's, it's radicalizing the city. Um, the homeless crisis, which has become now a crime crisis. Uh, I, I've even seen it. You know, we had homeless people try to break into our house. Um, this is something that you can't deal with with slogans. You've got to deal with policy. And, and that policy isn't, oh, you know, you poor people, we're going to, uh, we're going to let you do whatever you want. Um, which could be perceived by some people as kind of a right-wing position. I think it's a little more pragmatic. Um, and I'm not offering specific policy instructions here other than to say it's just you can't have people camping on the streets of cities. Um, so we've got to come up with something better than that. But there are people out there saying, oh, no, no, homeless rights, right? And I, I agree, homeless people should have rights, but not to camp in the city um, or in the streets of the city and, and, and crap on the, on the curb. So, you know, um, that's, that's about as far right as I'll go. <laughs> but, I, you know, we have to acknowledge that um, and, and that, you know, the, there are those kinds of concerns. And then on the other hand, and on, you know, on the left, I, I think that, um, you know, issues of, of civil rights and, and women's rights, human rights, I think right across the board, uh, I think broadly speaking, often these are winning subjects. The, the Republicans have found little niches that they can amplify into great big things, um, you know, so-called critical race theory, um, it, which just got blown all out of proportion. Um, the very, very small number of trans kids who want to compete in girls sports, trans, uh, you know, trans girls who want to compete in girls sports, um, that they're exploiting. And I would not um, argue that the Democratic Party should put those issues front and center. They, they, they still need to stand up for the rights of those people. But, uh, the, you know, the Republicans are going to be campaigning on those things. So, you know, we have to figure out how to deal with that. I, I, I don't see uh, easy answers, Bob. I, I, I think that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is, is her generation's Bernie, and she's going to go a long, long way, and she's got a lot of good people with her, you know, the other members of Congress, the squad, um, but there's others in addition to that. Um, but, you know, there's also, you know, you've got Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and some, you know, some very older people, people in their 60s and 70s who also have, you know, things to say and things to contribute to the conversation that are not inconsistent or incompatible. Um, 
I'm I'm very pleased that the Democratic Party seems to be coalescing around basically four issues, around abortion, guns, the environment, and the threat to democracy that the Republican Party represents. I think those are winning issues that from the far left within the Democratic Party to the to the neoliberal right within the Democratic Party, uh, the Josh Gottheimers in the Democratic Party, um, there's a there's a, an agreement, a spectrum of agreement, and uh, and that's a good thing. Okay, I'm someone who votes in absolutely every election. Although I've had some hope with recent events, certainly we had this Cannon decision that was just overturned by an appeals court. Two of the judges were Trump appointees. But we know the Supreme Court, I'll make it very mild, leans right. So what do we know? The Republicans are willing to do things that so far the Democrats have not. So if you undermine the system, it is hard to succeed. Why should I have hope? You know, we talked about this a little bit, you know, know, I look at this, the electoral power is balanced to the advantage of right. The Senate is balanced to the advantage of right. Never mind gerrymandering. I don't want to go deep into that. Look what's happening in North Carolina. Look at the, the ultimate arbiter is biased. You know, and all I hear from politicians is vote, vote, vote. And it's hard for me to get excited about that. You know, I just don't see it that way. That's enough. I'm not sure what your question is. My question is to those of us who've been in the system for a long time and the young people, how do we have hope that there's going to be systemic change? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I am hopeful that the Democrat, you know, I, I thought that uh, Chuck Schumer should have blown up the, the filibuster on day one. There's been so much good legislation that came out of the House that could have passed the Senate. Um, I, Chuck Schumer has been a big disappointment in many ways. Now, that said, he's running the Senate and I'm not. And I'm willing to assume that he knows things I don't know. But um, I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that. Um, I think that you either have faith in democracy or you don't. You either believe that in the end the good guys are going to win or you don't. And I'm just not willing, and I have never been willing in my life, to embrace the level of cynicism necessary to say, screw it, you know, we're, we're doomed, it's not going to work. Um, I, I, I realize that the Democratic Party moves slower than I would like. Um, you know, I've been banging on their doors since... Uh, 2003 on the radio and, and in print since the 90s, um, you know, railing about it. I, I used to, you know, beat up Harry Reid on the air all the time, uh, make jokes about how, you know, they should uh, steal Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is when Schwarzenegger was governor of California, how somebody should stand outside his, his uh, house, you know, every month when the testosterone mail delivery arrives and steal it and go shoot up harry reed with it you know come on harry get a spine you know fight back um he was always so nice and so friendly and oh we can't do that and that would be too far um you know he was a good man in retrospect and and you know i don't want to speak ill of the dead but um i the democratic party has all has, throughout my lifetime has always been the party that says we're going to do things the right way. We're going to do things the, the appropriate way. We're going to do things um, 
carefully and, and, and in some, many cases, slowly to make sure that the outcome is strong and solid and that there's a consensus around this. We're not just going to grab power for the sake of power. The Republican Party is pursuing that ladder, grab power for the sake of power and get whatever you can done quickly. And now they've overreached, you know, particularly with abortion. But I think they've overreached, uh, frankly, with neoliberalism as well over the last 40 years, although Democrats have their fingerprints all over that, too. And um, and I think it's going to blow up in their face. Uh, I don't know if it's going to blow up in their face in this election or over the next few years. But I really think that the era of uh, Republican dominance of American politics or more appropriately to say conservative dominance and now neo-fascist or as biden would say semi-fascist dominance of our of our politics i really think that's over i think there's something to be said for you know stanley turchin's notion of these 40-year cycles within the context of strauss and howe's 80-year cycles in politics and i think that we're at the end of a 40-year conservative cycle we're, we're going into or beginning a, a a far more progressive cycle okay Biden gets in office, first six to ten months are great, then the works are gummed up, and the approval ratings go down, and his whole party does not rally around him. The right has been on this program from the beginning, he's old, he's senile, all this other stuff. The left was silent, and now, two years later, Biden has some victories, his numbers are going up. But the people in Washington are still not supporting him vocally. What do you think is happening here? Well, I've been hearing a fair amount of support for Biden, you know, uh, recently, uh, particularly going into the election. Maybe some of it's pro forma, but but I think, in, you know, a lot of it is, is sincere. Um, yeah, when he when he couldn't. Yeah, I, you know, I think I was pissed off about this. I think a lot of Democrats were when he couldn't get. Um, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to go along with friggin' voting rights for God's sake. Um, you know, at that point, I, I just can't imagine Lyndon Johnson doing that as president or as as uh, in Ch- Chuck Schumer's position as leader of the Senate, the Democrats in the Senate. I mean, you know, uh, Lyndon Johnson would have gone in there and 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 picked picked uh, Joe Manchin up by the by the throat and slammed him up against the wall and said, "Okay, buddy." Here's what you're going to do for me, and here's what I'm going to do for you. And he'd know in advance, you know, what he was going to, what he was, you know, you're going to get a bridge named after you and a and a brand new power plant, and you're going to give me this goddamn bill. I mean, you know, that that's what Lyndon Johnson would have done, and uh, and frankly, that's what Franklin Roosevelt would have done. And uh, you know, I, there's a lot of us who would very much like a Joe Biden like that and a Chuck Schumer like that, but that's not how these guys are wired. So you know, we've got what we've got. I guess. Okay, let's talk about Newsom. I live in California. I've certainly met him, thought he was an empty suit. I mean, I, you know, like my grandmother would be fine if Roosevelt was president forever. I felt that Jerry Brown could run the state forever, but needless to say, the law does not allow him to. However, ever since the uh, incident during uh, lockdown when he went to the restaurant and a couple of other faux pas, he has become very aggressive, not only in his own state, but with DeSantis, etc. This is sort of a three-part question, or as many parts as I'm going to whip out here. Is Biden going to run? Could Newsom win? And is Newsom the, co- the candidate? I'm assuming that Biden is not going to run, uh, just because of his age. Um, wait, wait, but, so that's, you know, 
but that is your belief that he's not going to run? That's my belief. I mean, I, I don't talk about it much on the air because I know that once a uh, president, once it's clear that a president is not going to run, he starts losing power and becomes lame duck. And that's why Biden's not going to acknowledge that. But I'd be surprised if he runs again. And I, and I think it, it is, his age would be a, a, a problem for him if he runs again. Um, with regard to Newsom, I, uh, you know, whether he is the, uh, the kind of Justin Trudeau of, of, of the United States, because uh, there's been a lot of comparisons there, um, you know, time will tell. I don't live in California, so I don't know him as well as, uh, you know, I know, for example, politicians in Oregon. And I'm not talking about personally knowing, but just, you know, in, the, in my newspaper every day. Um, but the thing that I, Newsom has figured out, which I think is brilliant, uh, and, and it's, you know, something that uh, most good politicians know, is that it is a lesson that I learned when I, I wanted to write novels. I've written probably seven or eight novels, two of them were published. They're just terrible. I'm a, a lousy fiction writer. But um, I, I attended a workshop in, in Hawaii back in the 70s on how to write novels. And this, this famous New York Times bestselling novelist got up and he said, your hero is not the most important character in your book. Your hero is not where you need to spend most of the time. And this is the biggest mistake that people make, is spending all their time on their hero. He said, uh, your hero is only as good as your anti-hero. Your, your good guy can only be as good as your bad guy. And the goodness of your good guy is literally defined by your bad guy. Clarice, uh, you know, in the FBI would have been just another FBI agent if it wasn't for Hannibal Lecter. Superman would have just been a guy who stops robberies at the 7-Eleven if it wasn't for the Joker or, you know, you know fill in the, the, anti, the, the anti-hero. So, the, you know, and this, this is true in storytelling, but it's also true in politics that, you know, you can only be as good as your opponent is evil. And so I think, you know, if Newsom has picked out the most evil Republican out there who actually has a chance of playing in the political game for some time, I think Trump is out of the picture now. And that's DeSantis. And I think that that's a proper evaluation. And then has decided, okay, I'm going to pick a fight with this guy and I'm going to I'm going to beat him um, because and I'm going to use him as my foil to demonstrate my goodness against his evil then I think that's brilliant politics, and I encourage him to do more of it. Okay, DeSantis. DeSantis evidences his education. He seems to be thinking about what he's doing, as opposed to even somebody like Ted Cruz who has elite degrees but is not in touch with reality. Everybody who deals with him on the inside says he's not unlikable. As you did, if you take Trump off the table. Is DeSantis a viable winning candidate in your eyes? I think it's possible. Um, I, I don't, you know, again, I don't live in Florida, but I, you know, I've, I've certainly been observing DeSantis a lot lately. I, I, my understanding is that he's a little bit of a, of a uh, kind of an Aspie kind of character that, you know, to, he, he doesn't pick up social cues very effectively. Uh, he's not socially very competent. Um, he's brilliant. He lives in his head. He's got a super high IQ. Um, and that, uh, therefore he's not doing what he's doing out of a fire in his belly, that he's doing what he's doing out of carefully constructed calculation. And, 
I'm not sure how far that can take you. I, I, I think it'll get you someplace, but I'm not sure how long it'll last. Um, uh, Trump did a really good job of adopting uh, or, or holding, you know, his racist rants and stuff about immigrants and things like that, um, black people, et cetera. Um, he had the fire in the belly. Bernie Sanders has the fire in the belly. Um, uh, Gavin Newsom, I'm assuming, has the fire in the belly. He certainly seems like it, although, like I said, I, I haven't been paying a lot of attention to him until the last year. Um, so, you know, whether DeSantis is just a cipher, you know, whether he is just the, uh, the, the robot du jour. I mean, part of the problem is that a lot of the right wing policy positions outside of the ones on race and immigration, which are both really all about race. Uh, outside of the, the racist fire in the belly stuff on the right, most of their policy positions don't make any sense or are so unpopular that they don't want to talk about, it. you know, ending abortion, uh, more tax cuts for billionaires, more deregulation of industry, more air, air pollution from, from fossil fuel. Um, you know, they, they literally don't make sense um, on top of being unpopular. And so, uh, you know, the fire in the belly racism stuff sells really well. And, you know, ever since Richard Nixon declared a Southern strategy, that's been the, the go-to place for the GOP. Um, and, and that'll carry you a long, long way. Um, whether DeSantis is doing this because he really feels that or because he just thinks that's what he has to do, that's what he has to say. And, hey, you know, we'll pick up some immigrants, some brown-skinned people in, in Texas and send them to Martha's Vineyard. Uh, I, I don't know, but my sense of it is that he's running a script. That he's that he's that he's running a, a program, as it were, and that I think is a is a weakness, a, a, a fallibility, and a, a vulnerability. And uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see if if my if my analysis is right. Okay, let's talk about Trump. Trump's in trouble in Georgia. Trump is in trouble about the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. There's January sixth. It's civil. Uh, information, which is quite damning, that was released uh, by uh, New York just recently, but that's not criminal. Is he indicted criminally? Will he be convicted? Will he ever serve a day in jail? And what will be the result if all those things come true? I think the answers are yes, yes, no, and nothing. Um, (laughs) Sadly. I do believe that uh, Donald Trump will be indicted criminally. I do believe that he will be convicted. Um, and I, I would be very surprised if he goes to jail. Um, we have uh, a real reluctance in this country to send wealthy or powerful people to prison. It happens very rarely. And when it does happen, um, you know, like Martha Stewart, who was not all that powerful uh, or that rich, um, it tends to happen way down on the food chain of rich and of, you know, of wealth and power. And uh, so, uh, frankly, I, I, I think Trump is just going to fade into obscurity. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I, I think that, you know, the jig is up. OK, so we have the primaries with, you know, primaries are uh, long off, but starting in the spring, people start to run. And many prognosticators, many educated say, if he runs, he gets the nomination. You do not agree with that. Trump? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't th- I don't I don't think that well, let me let me recalibrate that answer. 
if he was running in a Republican primary that where the entire Republican Party, beyond just the rabid, fanatic, racist, neo-fascist base, was voting, I, I think that uh, you know there are a couple of politicians, DeSantis at the top of that list, who could give him a run for his money. I think DeSantis can still give him a run for his money. Um, the way that our the way that our primary system is set up, uh, and you know, particularly given the primary elections typically don't happen in the in a in a um, in an environment where anything else of consequence is on the ballot. Uh, thus, only the real true believers and the and the hardcore fanatics show up. Uh, works to Trump's benefit, but I I I would be astonished if he runs in twenty twenty four. I think that um, he's he, he he would have to in order to comply. I mean, this guy has raised a half a billion dollars since he left office. He's got all these rubes who are just throwing money at him. Um, uh, many of them, probably most of them, elderly, and he's just draining their banks, bank accounts. It's the most successful, profitable grift he's probably ever run in his entire life. And he would have to stop doing that if he runs for president. He would have to. He would have to clean up his act. He'd have to start being accountable to the federal to the Federal Elections Commission. Um, you know, there are rules, there are laws, there are things you have to comply with. Uh, he got away with not complying with them last time, in large part, uh, because nobody took him seriously. The Obama administration wasn't, you know, prosecuting him for his FEC violations in 2015 and early 2016. And then throughout his presidency, he basically controlled, you know, the, the, the government. And the Federal Election Commission has three Republicans on it that are so hardcore that they just, you know, they just froze the FEC throughout that four years. They, they, they were incapable of doing anything. And I'm not sure to what extent that that's still the case, but, um, you know, I, I, I just don't think he's willing to give up his grift to run for president. I think he's going to continue to talk about it because it gets him money. But I think that that, that by, by the end of next year and certainly by, by uh, early 2023, uh, we will know whether my analysis is right. But I, I just don't think that he's going to be the guy. Okay, Nate Silver famously called the election 2012 accurately. Since then, despite their protestations, the polls have been wildly inaccurate. Some will say, well, it was in the margin of error. Even though Biden won, there was stronger support for Trump than the polls said. We've been listening to this canard that the party in power always loses seats in Congress, in the midterm, yet we have the apportion. Now they're saying, well, you know, the polls are accurate. What is your feeling about the midterm elections, primarily in the House and Senate? My sense of it is that it's going to be a Democratic blowout, in large part because of, uh, because of abortion and because of the large number of women and young people who are signing up to vote right now. Um, with regard to polls, I, you know, I, I know that polls have uh, faced a real challenge. Um, you know, my phone, I have it just set so that if somebody calls, it's not in my contacts. It just doesn't ring. I mean, you know, it's getting harder and harder for pollsters to do their business and uh, and and find, you know, a, a genuinely representative cross section. And uh, so, you know, I, I get it that they're they're kind of in a crisis, but uh, my it, but I'm, you know, I'm no analyst for polls, but but I do think that the Democrats are going to do really well this fall. Knock wood. 
And finally, and you know, it's the amazing power of one person who challenges the legitimacy of the presidential election. There have been all these voter suppression laws and, you know, taking away the rights of the people laws. We don't have to delineate them one by one. But not every Republican, there was a story in the New York Times two days ago, it was a little confusing. They said these Republicans would not guarantee they would accept the results, although some literally just didn't respond. What do you anticipate happens when Republicans lose in this cycle? Will they walk away like the Democrats did historically, did in Virginia last cycle? Or is this become a big war? Well, we've seen several candidates now that, that are doing the sort of loser routine. Um, I, you know, I, I would expect more of that, but I don't think it's going to be consequential, Bob. I, you know, the, the problem, I, I think, is going to be more with the election officials who are, who are coming into office, who are clear partisans. And they're basically saying, if our party doesn't win, then there was cheating and we're going to, we're going to refuse to validate the election. Um, I'm, I'm far more concerned about, um, you know, the Secretary of State of Arizona or the uh, local election officials in the various counties than I am about Carrie Lake, you know, pouting if she loses the, the election. So assuming that those fears, do you think if those fears are real, well, will those fears activate and become consequential? I, I think it's possible. I think it's very possible. I, I, I don't think it's going to be a, a national crisis. I think it's going to be uh, hyper-local. I, I suspect it's going to happen in probably four or five states and maybe more. Um, and uh, there's going to be a lot of pushback. And I think ultimately it's going to work to their disadvantage in a big way, much like the Dobbs decision. It's going to be, you know, the visible overreach, um, the clear sore loserism um, is, is uh, over time going to uh, harm them. And, uh, and tarnish their brand rather than help them. I mean, you know, it, they'll do well with their true believers, their small base of true believers. But uh, that base is, I believe, shrinking right now rather than growing. Tom, I want to thank you for taking the time. You certainly made me think and were aligned politically and great to hear who you are underneath the surface. I know you have to write your opinion piece. You have another radio show tomorrow. So thanks again for taking the time to talk to me and my audience. Bob, it's been a pleasure, and and, and uh, it's rare that uh, that I'm interviewed by somebody who has the the insights, the thoughtfulness, and the depth that you have, and I've I've enjoyed it. I hope it's useful for the people who listen to it. Thank you. I'm sure it will be. Till next time. This is Bob Lefsetz. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.